Unlike uh, Brent Peterson, I actually do need a microphone. (laughs) It's good to be with you again. I'm not Brent. Uh, In fact, we are probably as different as two people could be, but we are the best of friends. In fact, we are writing a book together. We've been writing it for five years. It will be done soon. Um, but I'm very meticulous in my writing, and I edit as I go, and I'm very you know, sort of detail-oriented. He writes 10,000 words for me and says, there's a chapter in there somewhere. Here you go. So, yeah. But we are... We are very close friends, so it's uh, my pleasure and privilege to help him out and to be with you again. I was here after Pastor Mike, I was here after Dustin and Olivia, and now I am after uh, Stephanie and Tom, thank you. And it's nice to be in a place where, you know, I don't have to explain why women can be preachers, right? (laughs) Um, you actually should be very, very proud of yourselves because there, is, there are some churches in the denomination that will say, oh, some of the very greatest missionaries came up from that particular church. Or this particular church, lots of people are called to, to be pastors. And You need to know that you are now the sending church for chaplains of Nazarene universities. <laughs> so you might, with the next person ask if they have any aspirations (laughs) to be chaplains. But it's good to be with you. Um, We're going to be in Luke 10. In 1857, there was an author named Anthony Trollope, who wrote these inspiring words for us. There is perhaps no greater hardship at present inflicted on mankind in civilized and free countries than the necessity of listening to sermons. Now, I certainly believe, or at least I hope, that you do not come sharing these same sentiments. In fact, uh, we have listened to lots and lots of sermons in our lives. So much that maybe listening to sermons can become routine. Let's think if you added up how many sermons you've listened to in your lifetime. My mother is almost 96 years old, and that, I counted up, is a bit over 10,000 sermons in her lifetime, and that doesn't even count revivals or camp meetings. So, can you imagine 10,000 sermons? The Greek word for preaching means to announce good news. But really, when you stop and think about it, do we really expect to hear something new in a sermon? I'm sure my mother has heard it all before. 
And most of us here, I would imagine, have heard Jesus, gone through the Gospels, his teachings, his miracles, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, countless times before. We have so many uh, experiences of listening to someone break open the word that perhaps it becomes a little bit routine for us. It's like the teacher at a Christian school who asked the children, who invented the steam engine? And everyone was awkwardly silent for a while until a little boy raised his hand. Um, Well, I guess it must be Jesus again. Well, this sermon is about Jesus again. But the more that I preach, the more I realize that is all I need to say. As God's spirit with us this morning breaks open the word of life and transforms it to words on a page to the very bread of life itself. So let's begin in Luke 10, verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? And he answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert in the law replied, I'm sure reluctantly, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Here we have a passage of scripture that most of us know like the back of our hand. 
Most people, even out in secular culture, have some sense of what it means to be a good Samaritan. We even have something called Good Samaritan Laws, which means that uh, if you do see someone in trouble, you are morally obligated to help. And we know that scenario that Jesus here is facing when he tells this parable. The religious experts are at him again. We know that they keep trying to get at Jesus, to corner him, to trip him up, to wear him down, to get him to crack under pressure and reveal himself as the imposter that they think he is. And we know that they do not succeed. And we know that Jesus often gives answers to them that pierce their hearts in return. And now this particular man, an expert in the law, desperately trying to find a loophole to justify himself, finds himself with no excuse in the end as Jesus turns this and tells the powerful and penetrating story of the Good Samaritan. In the parable, it is the religious men who fail miserably, who when all is said and done, end up looking like fools. And interesting, the religious men in the parable happen to look an awful lot like the religious experts who keep coming to question Jesus. He makes his point. They would not have missed it. And we get a glimpse from Jesus' words of that Hebrew scripture that says that God's word divides bone from marrow like a double-edged sword. And those listening to Jesus that day would have heard the slice. And those listening to Jesus would have been absolutely shocked at who Jesus makes the hero. He chooses a Samaritan. A Samaritan in a particular Hebrew culture at that time was absolutely despised by true Jews. He was seen as a half-blood of someone who didn't know how to worship correctly, as someone seen as dirty or filthy. He was despised by the Jewish leaders. So Jesus couldn't have picked a more offensive person to represent the good. I'm almost positive that when you have heard this story preached before, you are asked to identify yourself with one of the characters in the story. Are you like the religious people or are you like the good Samaritan? And we are in this parable. Jesus' words go beyond that particular Jewish leader, and we should listen up. Which character in the story represents us? 
I felt a little twinge as I was driving here this morning. I passed a couple of cars that were broken down by the side of the road. And I'm going, I got to go do a religious thing. So which character represents us? Hold on to that question for a few minutes. Compassion is a word we find in this text, and we tend to throw it around a lot. And we probably have some understanding of what it means. <clears throat> but beyond sheer definition, we also experience compassion. It is an emotion. If I were to begin to tell you stories of people that I know personally, I believe that we would begin to feel that sort of a sympathetic, compassionate emotion. We'd start to feel some internal tuggings at our heart. I could tell you about Kim, who had an alcoholic father and a schizophrenic mother, who was raised by five different foster families, the last of which used the foster money to get drunk every night. I could tell you about Joan, who after raising a family as best she could, now finds herself in a growing statistic, an elderly woman regularly beaten by her own daughter. I could tell you about Liz, who was raised in a Christian home that was so bizarre, so strict, so severe and abusive as she grew up that she developed a debilitating form of obsessive compulsive disorder called scrupulosity, where she had to obsessively read her Bible every waking hour or fall into a suicidal depression. These types of stories are repeated millions of times. You know people who have such stories. Not to mention the ones we hear about in the news. Famine, hurricanes, wars, political oppression, hate crimes, culture of violence, debilitating diseases, deadly viruses, children dying of cancer. It does not take much for us to be drawn in emotionally to feel compassion for the brokenness of the world. But I need to make sure that we understand that as much as we might feel compassion, actual compassion also results in action. Compassion is being moved by one's heart to act. The Good Samaritan showed compassion when he not only felt pity for the fallen man, which our text tells us he did feel, but he acted on that pity. He entered into the person's suffering and acted to restore healing. The Good Samaritan did not worry about what others thought of him. He did not worry about his own reputation. He did not worry how this would inconvenience him. He did not think about the cost to himself. 
He did not consider how this guy was going to repay him for his kindness. He simply acted with no regard for himself. He was only concerned about the fallen one and what he needed. And so the Good Samaritan is genuinely compassionate. Okay, back to the question. Who best represents you in this parable? This is where most sermons contrast the Good Samaritan with the priest and the Levite. This is where most sermons make us feel guilty for being like the priest and the Levite. Most sermons use that guilt to try to motivate us to be nicer to people, right? Who best represents you in this parable? But before you ponder that too long, I want to make a suggestion, so bear with me. I want to suggest that Jesus himself is the good Samaritan. He did not give us an example that he did not follow himself. Jesus the Christ did not worry about what people would think of him when he healed the lepers. He did not worry about his own reputation when he ate with tax collectors and sinners. He did not think about the inconvenience to him as he fed 5,000 people. He did not consider the cost to himself when he died on a cross. He did not and does not think about how we are going to repay him. We cannot repay him, only thank him. Jesus himself is the good Samaritan. And if it is appropriate to see Jesus as the good Samaritan, I would like to propose that we, you and I, should identify ourselves with the beaten one, the fallen one, the one who is left to die unless someone saves us. We are the fallen ones. We are in desperate need for someone to rescue us. We are the fallen ones who have wounds that we cannot bind up ourselves. We are the fallen ones in need of restoration and healing and compassion and love. We are the fallen ones who have been beaten, wounded, bleeding, dying. And Jesus Christ is our good Samaritan. God did not simply look down and have compassion on his people, on the world, but rather he acted and sent Jesus the Christ. He had compassion on us and sent Jesus to bring full salvation, healing, and restoration to our souls. But do we really grasp 
that we are the ones who have been beaten up and fallen. I'm going to be really direct here and say that chances are rather high that if you are a human being, and I think you all are, You haven't gone through life unscathed. You have been wounded in some way. Perhaps there were people who have done figurative or maybe even literal beatings. Perhaps there have been others who have wounded you by walking down the other side of the street. People who remain distant from our pain when they could have done something to help. Chances are that if you are a human being, you have been wounded and that you have scars. Sometimes preachers think that their responsibility is always 100% of the time to tell you to do better. I'm not preaching that sermon. It is truly my prayer that this place, this space is safe. That this is a house of healing where you can stop, take time, and allow the gospel preached to be applied to you before we kick you out the door to go love on the world. Get what I'm saying? The gospel is for you. And sometimes it's placed in our hands and we're told to give it away so fast that we don't let it soak in. And I will also say that not only is this a safe place for us to receive the healing from God, this is to be a safe place to receive healing from from each other as we offer unconditional love and grace to those in the body of Christ. There is a compassion that we owe to the world. Absolutely, you will hear that sermon again. But I want to focus on the fact that you are also to be very intimately compassionate and merciful to each other. When you look across the aisle, what do you see? All of us should see someone who has a story. It's too easy not to look behind each other's eyes and see what's really going on in our lives. I was raised in church in an era that you came to church, put on your best self, never let anybody know that you are vulnerable so that we could appear as holy as we could and then go home and weep all week. We have a tendency to hide, maybe especially in church. But we are called to relate to each other as if our lives depended on it, because they do. These are your people 
who are called to love and accept you and to offer you mercy and grace. Jesus is the good Samaritan who binds up our wounds. But in a sense, we are to be the innkeepers who continue to take care of each other. Where Jesus leaves us to nurse each other to health. We are never to be left alone. We are to be extensions of Christ's compassionate heart to each other. Unfortunately, I've heard lots and lots of stories that the wounding has happened in the context of church people. We read from Colossians earlier in the service. I'd like to read uh, from chapter 3 as we close. Verses 12 through 14 of chapter 3. Therefore is God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all of these virtues that we are to express to each other, Put on genuine agape love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Another word for bind is woven. We are to be woven together as a Christian community. We are called to love each other. That's not new to your ears. You've heard it preached before. But I just wonder if we just need to hear again, first of all, permission to say, I am in need. And secondly, the call to just nurture and love each other. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a theologian in the 1940s. He did not live long enough to write extensively. He was captured by the Nazis for trying to help Jews. And they executed him four days before the end of the war. But while in prison, he did write books that continue to influence Christianity today. And one of those books is simply called Life Together. It's a small little book. He wrote from the perspective of a prisoner who was deprived of Christian fellowship. I want to read a simple quote to leave you with. He he who loves only the ideal of community really destroys community. But he who loves real brothers and sisters, real flesh and blood, builds the community of faith. 
In other words, we need to do more than love the idea of community. We need to do more than love the idea of church or love the idea of Christian fellowship. We need to love each other. And to do that, we must know each other. Extending real love to real people. As if our life depends on it. Because it does. Let's pray. Holy God, I thank you for this church. I thank you for their consistency, their faithfulness. I thank you that uh, you have provided for their needs, even now during another time when they are seeking a pastor. I just pray this morning that if there's anyone here who's hurting or feeling wounded or needs your touch, that your Holy Spirit would be very real and very present to them. But open our eyes, Lord, to see each other the way that you see us. May we be loving and compassionate and kind and humble and gentle and patient. May we forbear each other and forgive each other and love each other with the love that you have changed our lives with. Particularly as they're with, without them having um, a lead pastor at this point, I pray you would give them special grace uh, to love each other well. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your compassion. We thank you that you are the good Samaritan who binds up our wounds and heals us so that we might touch your resurrection power in our lives. And yes, so that we might have a testimony of the miraculous truth of your simple gospel. And we pray all these things in your name. Amen. I probably shouldn't do this. It's my first week, but I'm going to keep you a little, little while longer. That's okay. I've been praying about whether or not to say this, and I feel led to do that. I want to stand as a testimony to the fact that God is good and God's community is a source of healing. About 10 years ago, my husband uh, told me one day that he was renouncing his faith in Christ, that he was going to stop going to church and uh, start a very different lifestyle. And then last summer, he asked me for a divorce. There was nothing I could do about it. But I stand as a testimony to the fact in the last year, God has been so incredibly faithful to me and that God has bound up my wounds in ways that I didn't know was possible. And I stand now a year later through the goodness of my church community, feeling really free and whole and loved and so I just wanted to share that with you.
you really do need each other, yes. to quote Reuben Welch. So let me pray a prayer of blessing over you. You are able to keep us. You are able to heal us. You are able to bind up our wounds, God. And so maybe we have some situations today that really takes a faith beyond all that we can ask or imagine. But Lord, you through the ages have proven yourself to be truly faithful. As Peter said, you are the Christ, where else can we go? You are the source of everything. And so God's people this week go in the faith of this community, love on each other, with the love you have received from God so that we can be whole, so that we can show the world what it means to be truly Christ-like and truly Christian. In the name of Christ, amen. Group hug. (laughs) 